Hello and welcome to episode 19 of Paper View, where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in their true context in a weekly podcast. One of the big stories of the week is the crash in visas payment system. And this is an article in The Guardian about that. Visa card payment system returns to full capacity after crash. Visa's payment system is operating at full capacity after a hardware failure affected customers in the UK and the rest of Europe on Friday. A statement posted on the Visa Europe website in the early hours of Saturday said Visa Europe's payment system is now operating at full capacity and Visa account holders can now use Visa for any of their purchases and ATMs as they normally would. The issue was not associated with any unauthorised access or cyber attack, the statement said. Millions of people were left unable to pay for goods and services across Europe after the unprecedented crash which began at around 2.30pm. Visa apologised late on Friday, saying it had fallen well short of its goal to ensure cards work reliably at all times. Major retailers had earlier confirmed that card purchases were failing. Queues built up at petrol stations and shopping was left at supermarket tills as customers were unable to pay. Lisa Eagle to Muir, 44, who had come to London to audition for the Great British Sewing Bee, could not buy any food at King's Cross Station for her return rail journey to Newcastle. I've only got two cars and they're both Visa. I tried to buy my tea and M&S and a cafe, but they were both rejected. I don't know what I'm going to do, it's a long journey home with no food. She later found she could withdraw money from a cash machine. A spokesman for the supermarket chain asked her said some payments had gone through but others had not. When you try to pay something it sends a message to Visa and then Visa have to send a message back to the chip and pin machine to say that this is okay and then the banks are in between at some point. The message that is coming back to the chip and pin, that is where the fault is, the spokesman said. It is understood the Bank of England immediately contacted Visa to find out when its system will be back up and running. One banking industry source said there is never a good time for the payment system to go down but a Friday afternoon when there is a flood of people leaving work must be among the worst. In Spain the Guardia Civil sent a tweet aimed at reassuring those affected by the system failure. Beneath the picture of Johnny Depp as a shocked Captain Jack Sparrow at the force said, stay calm, if you can't pay it's not because you've been robbed or hacked. Visa is suffering a service crash in Europe that's stopping payments going through on its cards. Bank customers in the UK were still able to obtain cash from ATMs which led to large tubes forming at cash machines. The Visa spokesman said on Friday the issue was the result of a hardware failure. We have no reason to believe this was associated with any unauthorised access or malicious event. Well, I've talked before on pay-per-view about the agenda for the cashless society, not least in episode 5. And this is a glimpse of what it would be like in such a society when the device doesn't accept your card. And anyone who resists, questions or exposes an authority will have no access to money. In the end, the elite want a singular electronic cashless currency. The euro is a great example. By introducing the euro, they eliminated the franc, the mark, the guilder, etc. in Europe and replaced it with the euro. Except for some countries like Britain, who were, of course, in the European Union at the time, but have somehow managed to retain their native currency, the pound. Which I have to say is one thing that surprises me. Not a lot surprises me after 10 years of researching world events, but Britain retaining the euro does surprise me. Especially Britain being as important as it is to the elite's agenda. Anyway, people say the euro didn't work in the way it was planned, but it was never meant to work. It was never meant to be an end in itself. It was just a stepping stone to the singular electronic currency. There's also planned to be a World Bank dictating all global finance from a central point. In terms of Visa's role in this cashless society, here's an article in The Sun from July 2017 about Visa paying businesses in Britain to stop taking coins and notes. Visa planning war on cash by paying Brit businesses to refuse to take notes and coins as payment. 
Visa is reportedly planning to wage war on cash by paying British businesses to start refusing coins and notes. The payments giant will soon try and strike deals with shops and restaurants worth thousands of pounds of free use of contactless technology. In return, British shop owners must ensure all customers pay with debit card, credit card or digital payments like Apple Pay. Visa's chief executive Al Kelly vowed to put cash out of business. UK retailers currently spend £800 million a year on transaction fees for over 10 billion card payments, according to the Daily Telegraph. Earlier this week, research from the British Retail Consortium also found transactions made with debit cards have overtaken cash, for the first time making it the number one form of payment in the UK. The BRC said that overall card payments now account for more than half of all retail purchases. The study from the BRC came less than a month after Barclaycard's contactless spending index revealed that card payments rose by more than a third in the last year, becoming the UK's favourite way to pay for goods. Many retailers now accept new payment methods which allow people to use their mobile phone like a wallet, such as Apple Pay, Android Pay and Samsung Pay, but critics slam Visa for bribing British businesses. James Daly, director of consumer group Fairer Finance, said Visa appears to be bribing companies to stop using cash. It should remember that many of the people who rely on cash are the most vulnerable in society. Caroline Abrahams, director of the charity Age UK, added cash is still very important to many older people, particularly small transactions. Visa will begin trialling this scheme in the US this week with plans to hand $10,000 each to 50 small businesses. Jack Forstell, the company's global head of merchant solutions, said we very much hope to bring a similar initiative to the UK. Visa's chief executive Al Kelly told investors last month, we are focused on putting cash out of business. The number one growth lever is the conversion of cheque and cash to digital and electronic payments. As I've said before, at least most of the major corporations are owned by the global elite, especially the financial corporations. And they're all ultimately working towards the same agenda. I talked last week about the predictions by Dr. Richard Day, as recounted by Dr. Lawrence Dunnigan. So see the last episode for more information on who they are, but for people who have heard me talking about Dr. Richard Day in the last episode, this is what Dr. Richard Day said about money. Money will become predominantly credit. It was already. Money is primarily a credit thing, but exchange of money will be not cash or palpable things, but electronic credit signal. People will carry money only in very small amounts for just pocket sorts of things. Any purchase of any significant amount will be done electronically. Earnings will be electronically entered into your account. It will be a single banking system. It may have the appearance of being more than one, but ultimately and basically it will be one single banking system so that when you get paid, your pay will be entered for you into your account balance and then when you purchased anything at the point of purchase, it would be deducted from your account balance and you would actually carry nothing with you. Also, computer records can be kept on whatever it was you purchased so that if you were purchasing too much of any particular item and some official wanted to know what you were doing with your money, they could go back and review your purchases and determine what you were buying. There was a statement that any purchase of significant size, like an automobile, bicycle, a refrigerator, a radio or television or whatever might have some sort of identification on it so it could be traced. So that very quickly anything which was either given away or stolen, whatever, Authorities will be able to establish who purchased it and when. Computers would allow this to happen. Electronic payments initially would all be based on different kinds of credit cards. These were already in use in 1969 to some extent, not as much as now. But people would have credit cards with the electronic strip on it. And once they got used to that, then it would be pointed out the advantage of having all of that combined into a single credit card, serving a single monetary system, and then they won't have to carry around all that plastic. How could Dr. Day, according to Dr. Lawrence Dunnigan, have been so accurate? because society is agenda driven, not people driven. And if you know the agenda, it's child's play to predict. I use the word predicting quote marks there, because if you know the agenda, it's more than prediction, it's knowledge of the agenda. 
but if you know the agenda, then predicting the future is child's play. Another article about money. This is in the Daily Mail. Lloyds and Royal Bank of Scotland bosses are playing down customer numbers to justify branch closure and shocking investigation funds. Underhand tactics used by some of Britain's biggest banks to justify thousands of branch closures can be revealed today. A Daily Mail investigation found Lloyds and Royal Bank of Scotland are downplaying how many people use the branches they wanted to shut. Both banks, which were bailed out by taxpayers during the financial crisis, routinely published figures showing that only a tiny number of regular weekly customers still use branches facing the axe. But they use highly restrictive criteria that class a customer as being regular only if they go into a branch as many as 48 weeks in a year. It means customers who visit their local branch once a fortnight or who usually use it weekly but go on holiday several times a year are left out of the calculations. Last year, Lords and RBS shut 439 outlets between them around an eighth of their networks and they are axing at least 519 more this year. Last night, campaigners accused the banks of trying to mask the truth about the importance of branches to justify savage cuts depriving rural communities of vital services. What is it they want to do under Agenda 21? Get people off rural land and into mega cities. Liberal Democrat leader and former business secretary Sir Vince Cable said these criteria are absurdly restrictive and suggest the banks are very much on a mission to get rid of branches as quickly as possible. Quite apart from the rights and wrongs of closures, it does smack of dishonesty. If you're a small business, you may not go in every week, but you will still need to go in for a serious discussion about a loan. I've said before, in the Hunger Games society, they want to get rid of small businesses. They want to get rid of business in its entirety. They want corporations. When they shut a branch, banks must reveal how many customers rely on it under industry rules. They typically say the branches have only a handful of regular customers and are no longer cost-effective, but NatWest, owner RBS, classes, a customer is regular only if they have been in for 23 weeks of the past 26. Lloyd's criteria are even more restrictive at 48 weeks out of 52 weeks each year. This means even someone who went in every week apart from Easter, Christmas and a two-week summer holiday may not be classed as regular customers. These definitions rule out many thousands of people who pop into a branch only once every couple of weeks. Even though a branch closure would severely limit their access to basic services, it is also thought the figures count only those who make a transaction, meaning anyone who visits a branch for advice or information may not be included. Labour MP West Streeting of the Commons Treasury Committee said, I don't think this tallies with any reasonable judgment of what constitutes a regular customer. Some banks are making arbitrary and frankly ludicrous assessments of what constitutes a regular customer to try and bypass the spirit of the rules. By Lloyd's and RBS's standards, you would have to be a very, very high dependency customer to be counted. The pair's approach is far more restrictive than rival Barclays, which classifies someone as a regular customer if they use a branch just three times in a year. RBS and Lloyd's have used the numbers to justify the closure of branches all over the country. In Birmingham, for example, RBS said, it's now West City Centre branch of just six regular customers who closed it in February. The Federation of Small Businesses has repeatedly fought branch closures. FSB Chairman Mike Cherry said there are thousands of small firms who visit branches less frequently to cash checks, access credit lines and set up new accounts. And a lot of small business owners suddenly need access to in-person support at once in the event of a widespread online banking glitch or a credit card provider system going down as we witnessed this week. The quote goes on, the banks need to recognise the importance of these more infrequent visits. Caroline Abrahams of Age UK said, the way some banks classify regular customers sets the bank far too high. A local bank may still be really important to you even if you only visit it once or twice a month. 
She added, further bank branch closures are terrible news for many older customers, particularly those who are offline or live in rural areas. Derek French, who ran a campaign for community banking services until 2016, said, People in the communities affected will question whether the numbers are fair or if they're just being used as cover to close down branches which are still popular. It strikes people as very unreasonable to say branches are closing due to a lack of business if they themselves have to queue every time they go in. A spokesman for Lloyd said it publishes how many customers use a branch on a monthly basis as well as weekly, adding, we use over 100 measures when assessing the impact of a branch closure. We are transparent about the reasons for closing a branch. An RBS spokesman said transactions at branches in England and Wales were down 30% since 2014 and at the same period saw a 53% rise in the number of customers using mobile banking. He's added customers can choose from a range of digital face-to-face -face and local options to suit their needs. Justin Modray of the consumer group Candid Money said the rush to close bank branches can push customers onto the internet who aren't comfortable with online banking they could be vulnerable to fraudsters. Well, what about elderly people who don't use the internet? What are they going to do? NatWest last month shut its branch in the busy town of Harpenden in Hertfordshire to the surprise of customers. Local Tory MP Bim Athalami had written to RBS boss Ross McEwen urging him to rethink the closure. He wrote, This decision troubles me because of the number of thriving, small and medium-sized businesses based here. Despite the shift towards online banking for personal current accounts, small and medium-sized enterprises continue to rely on banking and branch. Furious customers blasted Lloyds when it axed the last bank branch in town in Wilton, Wiltshire, as part of its drive to cut costs. It means users must travel almost four miles to Salisbury for basic banking, hitting shopkeepers as well as vulnerable elderly people who are unable to drive. In a statement justifying its decision to close the branch, Lloyd said it was used on a regular weekly basis by only 27 customers. However, the lender admitted that 260 people went in most months and it added that 241 customers used only the Wilton branch and had no other method of banking. When the closure was announced, town mayor Peter Edge said that bosses had helped kill the branch off by slashing its opening hours from five to three days a week in 2015. The move sparked protests of customers at the time. Councillor Edge added, this is a terrible thing as Wilton is on the up. I think it is short-sighted. Well, this is the whole point I've been making today and previously on pay-per-view. It appears short-sighted if you see it from a customer's point of view and also the employees of the branches. There's no consideration for them at the level at which the decision's made. They've now got to find a job somewhere else. So if you look at it from that point of view, it appears short-sighted. However, the decision is made much higher up than employees of the bank. And it plays into the Hunger Games Society and the Agenda 21 world, and that's why it's happening. Once again, society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. Change of subject now. More demonization of Russia here. This is in the Daily Mail. Russia has been pumping out anti-British propaganda and assigning it as preparing for conflict, claims report. I did really just read that. Russia has been pumping out thousands of negative news stories about Britain and assigning it as preparing for a conflict, reports claimed. Well, so has Britain and America been pumping out demonisation of Russia at every opportunity because they want a conflict. As I've talked about before, a staggering 2,270 damaging television clips about the UK have been broadcast over a three-year period as part of a wider disinformation campaign by Russian media to discredit Europe. Research shows that 84% of all coverage about Britain on three of Russia's state-backed TV stations has been negative, according to a report by the Ukraine Crisis Media Centre, which works with the UK's Foreign Office to counter Russian disinformation. When was the last time Britain and America communicated a positive story about Russia? Experts said one of the stations even exploited the death of Labour MP Joe Cox who was murdered in June 2016 to suggest life in the UK is very dangerous. 
uh, if they did exploit the deaf to further their own agenda, then that is grotesque and appalling. But life in the UK is very dangerous. Let's see the shades of grey here rather than just the black and white. Natalia Popovich, who co-authored the report, said these channels now are totally state-controlled and the mouthpiece of the Kremlin. Well, do we not think that the BBC and ITN are, are not coming from the British side of things? And that CNN and Fox are not coming from the American side of things? Of course they are. Saying that Russian news channels have a Russian angle, well of course they will. Popovich says the negative output doubled in 2017 and it is increasing and it's dangerous as it looks like they are preparing themselves for some sort of conflict. According to the figures, there were 22,711 negative mentions of European countries during a three-year period. A total 10% of these were about the UK, the third highest, while 70% targeted France and 12% covered Germany. Europe was mentioned negatively on average 18 times a day on the channels which were being monitored. The report said, according to the Russian media, life in Europe is very difficult. A rhetoric that is constantly enforced through countless passing myths as facts. Miss Popovich said one station broadcast a historical perspective of the UK, highlighting how it had betrayed the Russian interests. Well, one thing the UK and America are doing is pounding out constant demonization of Russia to serve their own geopolitical agenda, their own foreign policy agenda. This covered the time of Queen Victoria to Theresa May's handling of the Skripal nerve agent poisoning in Salisbury. Well, alleged nerve agent. That story has so many holes in it. She said the entire show blasted Theresa May. They admit nothing and deny anything and make accusations. The coverage is both made up of opinions and misinformation. Two dozen different narratives surrounded the Skripal poisoning appeared in the Russian media as the state attempted to muddy the waters. But Britain's version of the Skripal story changes all the time. I mean, this is rich, isn't it? Accusing Russia of pounding out false information about Britain when Britain has been pounding out false information about Russia to demonise it without any evidence whatsoever for many years now. This is all part of an agenda to justify a conflict with Russia as part of a much bigger agenda to start a massive global conflict involving Russia, China and other countries, not least Britain and America. So if you don't have a genuine reason, then just invent excuses and communicate them through the clueless mainstream media and people will believe them because the media is telling them. This is what happened with weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, which, as we now know, according to the Chilcot inquiry, came out officially that Bush and Blair lied about weapons of mass destruction just as an excuse to go into Iraq. And not just for oil either. It was all part of this agenda to take over country after country and to invade country after country to fulfill this geopolitical agenda which fundamentally involves Russia. Of course, to some people it was obvious at the time that Bush and Blair lied about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, but we now know officially that that's what they did. This story is a great example of how clueless many mainstream journalists are when it comes to the bigger picture. I'd score here about rail travel. This is in the Daily Mirror. Britain's economy would have rocket fuel put into it by 2050 with nationwide high-speed rail network. Britain's economy would have rocket fuel put into it by 2050 with a nationwide high-speed rail network, says a leading transport think tank. Trains doing up to 250 miles an hour to cities all over the UK, such as Bristol, Cardiff and Edinburgh, would reduce reliance on London and revitalise every region, according to a report by Greengage 2. It would also cut road traffic and shrink a long-standing productivity gap with countries such as Germany, Italy and France, the group believes. HS2 is a planned high-speed link from London to Birmingham and on to Manchester and Leeds, expected to open from 2026. 
unveiling the Beyond HS2 report, Green Gage 21 director Jim Steer said we need a plan to put rocket fuel into our economic productivity as a vital new region is left behind. It comes after immersed rail passengers could travel between London and Bordeaux in under five hours using a proposed direct rail link. The route will be aimed at leisure travellers who prefer to travel by train rather than plane. London to Bordeaux rail journeys currently take 5 hours and 25 minutes with a change of trains in Paris. The return trip is even longer at 6 hours and 26 minutes. Four operators responsible for infrastructure along the new London Bordeaux route. Four operators responsible for infrastructure along a new London Bordeaux route, HS1 Limited, Eurotunnel, Lycea and SNCF Racing are in advanced talks over timetable slots that could be used by train company. Services would bypass Paris, taking advantage of a 188-mile high-speed link between Tours and Bordeaux, which opened in July last year. And there's another article here in The Independent. Richard Branson says Britain needs 700-mile-an-hour hyperloop trains. The debate on high-speed rail is accelerating, with opponents of competing schemes insisting they have the best solution for the UK. So Richard Branson has laid out plans for a hyperloop network across Britain carrying passengers at nearly 700 miles an hour. The system proposed by the Virgin founder involves pods travelling over an electromagnetic track enclosed in a low resistance tube with very low air pressure. Virgin Hyperloop 1 is intended to have a top speed of 670 miles an hour with some other developers promising even higher speeds. His firm has built a 500 meter test track in Nevada and is working on a Hyperloop connecting Mumbai and Pune in India. The Virgin founder told BBC Radio 4's You and Yours program most definitely it could be built in the UK and it would end up transporting people far quicker in far greater numbers with far greater convenience than any other train network in the UK. The cost of building Virgin Hyperloop would be I think about a third of building high speed rail and much much quicker. It can either be underground, it could be on the ground or it could be above the ground. So Richard said that Heathrow Airport can be connected with Gatwick and Stansted in 6 and 10 minutes respectively. Effectively it becomes one airport he said. It will be the future of one big important part of travel. The US entrepreneur Elon Musk has founded a boring company to construct a network of low-cost tunnels allowing travel from New York to Washington DC in less than 30 minutes. But Gareth Dennis, an engineer for an international design consultancy, believes that capacity and technical constraints mean Hyperloop is not feasible. He tweeted, Hyperloop is like building a motorway but only letting Rolls Royces use it. Hopeless. Meanwhile, the environmental transport think tank Green Gauge 21 has called for a conventional high-speed rail network connecting Britain by 2050. A new report beyond HS2 says that the move would put rocket fuel in Britain's economy. It would also reduce the relative advantages of London by lowering journey times between other cities. While France, Spain, Germany, Italy have extensive high-speed networks, Britain's only such line is high-speed one connecting London with the Channel Tunnel. High-speed two, a 56 billion pound, 250 mile an hour line connecting London with Birmingham, Manchester, Sheffield and Leeds is planned to open in sections in 2026. But Green Gauge 21 is calling for the same trains to be operated on a new fast corridor from Birmingham to Bristol. In addition, Edinburgh and London should be brought within 3 hours and 15 minutes, about an hour quicker than at present, with improvements to the East Coast Main Line. High-speed tracks have also needed across the Pennines connecting Liverpool and Manchester with Sheffield, Leeds, Newcastle and Hull, says the report. Jim Steer, founder and director of Green Gauge 21, said fundamentally we need to completely reorientate the railway from a hub and spoke centred on London to a fully national network. Britain lacks a long-term national railway strategy beyond HS2. We need a plan to put rocket fuel into our economic productivity. Today's report sets out proposals to do so. It is vital for the future of the country that no region is left behind and a national railway strategy needs to reach all parts of the country. Well, high-speed rail travel is designed to be the main means of transport in the Agenda 21 Hunger Games world. Some of the stories I featured last week were part of Agenda 21 out of the United Nations and the Hunger Games Society, which I've talked about before on pay-per-view, not least in episode 4. This is what privatisation of rail travel is all about. In that society, when rail travel is the main means of travel, then you can ensure only those who follow your orders get access to travel. 
Also, they want driverless cars to be another means of travel. Driverless cars run by artificial intelligence. This is why the monster Google is involved with driverless cars. Driverless cars will be programmed to take you nowhere the authorities don't want you to go, or to never take you beyond your region, your sector in Hunger Games talk. I've talked before about how part of Agenda 21 is to break up countries into regions, mega-regions, with mega-cities, smart cities. Smart cities controlled by artificial intelligence, with the smart grid, otherwise known as the cloud, the transhumanism cloud. The idea is to privatise and corporatise everything, so authority dictates who has access to it, and therefore you have a situation of total control because people have to do what you say to get access to the basics of life, including money, food and water. They're making it harder for farmers and growers to continue, and one of the reasons they want to get people off the land is so that farmers can't grow in the areas they were growing before. Move them into the cities, the mega cities, so that all food production can be by the corporations. Money is designed to be purely electronic, cashless, and we're moving there all the time, quicker and quicker. We're getting closer and closer to it. Contactless payment and payment by smartphone are stepping stones towards this cashless society. And of course, if money is purely electronic, then if you don't keep authority happy, then you get no access to money and therefore no access to anything else. It's all about total control. As I've said before on pay-per-view, and I can't stress this enough, people need a shift in perception, a shift in understanding that the world is run by an elite with a very sinister agenda for humanity. And that agenda is what drives society. Society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. Once people make that shift in perception and everything makes sense, people say, why do they do it like that? Why are they doing this? They could do it that way. They could do it far better if they did that. But then the idea is not what's best for people, it's what's best for the agenda. And when you understand that, then those questions are answered. And of course, when you know what the agenda is, which I'm, of course, talking about in every episode, that's the whole point of pay-per-view, to take news stories and show how they are relevant to the agenda and thus, in so doing, show the true context, the wider context of those news stories and the connections between them to other areas of the agenda or to people, organisations, situations, events, changes in society, etc. So people can see the panorama rather than just a part of it, which is what the media does it portrays everything as isolated and random and spontaneous. And when you make the connections and you see the context, then everything becomes clear. I was talking to someone about this once, this Agenda 21 world. And they said, oh, I don't know, that sounds a bit big brother to me. And I was thinking, yes, exactly. It does, doesn't it? There's a reason for that. Although Big Brother only tells part of the story, people have no idea what's coming down the line unless we start to address it. Without this shift in perception, we will never address it because we won't see why what's happening is happening. And if you don't understand why something's happening, you can't really understand that something. You can only see it in isolation and the shift in perception that society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. People seem to think that when something happens in society that they don't like, like say the budget goes up in a certain area, say alcohol goes up, 
by you know one p or two p or house prices go up. For example, people think, well, this is what it's like now. But when another party gets into power, another leader, it could change, and it's just a cycle of good and bad, good and bad, and it'll get better, and sometimes it won't be so good. And the reason they think that, and the reason they therefore have no interest in people like me and what we're saying, is because they think, well, this, what does it matter what's going on? It doesn't. Why should I care about what's going on? Because it's just. Sometimes it's not so good, other times it's good. It's just a cycle, just waiting, just waiting, it'll get better. The reason they think that is because they don't understand there's an agenda and society changes in line with the agenda. That's what drives society. Once you understand that and what the agenda is, then changes in society look very, very different. It's a long, long planned agenda and it isn't stopping for anyone or anything unless we decide it's stopping and come together in numbers to do that because we have to do it in numbers, because if we try to do it individually, or even in small groups, then apart from certain areas, some things you can change with a small number of people, you can make changes in certain areas with a small number of people, but overall people have to come together, because individuals or tiny groups can be picked off easily, but if you do it in numbers, then the system can't cope with it, and that's the way to bring an end to this. Civil disobedience, as it's called, peaceful civil disobedience. No need for rioting or violence or even protesting. A lot of protests are ignored anyway. A million people were on the streets in London marching against the invasion of Iraq and then Iraq was invaded anyway. Non-compliance, peaceful non-compliance is what will bring this all to an end. And once you know the agenda, then understanding where society is going and the future direction of society and the world is child's play because once you know the agenda unless anything intervenes to stop it then it's going to happen and this agenda will therefore reach its conclusion in that situation a conclusion which at best is a total totalitarian society at worst the end of anything human as we know human today article here about Google. This is in the Independent. Google ditches contract with US military after employee revolt. Google will reportedly halt its work on a military project that had fermented an employee revolt. Google Cloud Chief Diane Green told employees that the company would not renew its contract with the US military according to multiple reports according to a broad backlash against Google developing technology that could be weaponized. A representative of Google did not immediately respond to a request for comment. Thousands of workers have signed a letter asking leadership to end its involvement in a Pentagon pilot program known as Project Maven that uses artificial intelligence to decipher video footage and can be used to improve targeted drone strikes. We believe that Google should not be in the business of war, the letter read, cautioning that the tool could be used to assist the US government in military surveillance and potentially lethal outcomes. The letter warned that continuing to assist with the project would compromise Google's informal Don't Be Evil motto would harm the company long term by driving away potential new hires. This plan will irreparably damage Google's brand and its ability to compete for talent, the letter warned. Amid growing fears of biased and weaponized AI, Google is already struggling to keep the public's trust. 
Google is not the only technology giant to come under pressure over furnishing the government with powerful new technologies. A group of civil liberties advocates recently demanded that Amazon stop selling a facial recognition tool to law enforcement agencies, warning it could be abused to surveil innocent people. That's the idea. I've said before that these Silicon Valley giants like Google, Amazon, Facebook, YouTube, owned by Google, and others are all ultimately working towards the same agenda, the elite's agenda, and that they have fundamental connections to the intelligence arena. This is why they're all pushing the transhumanism agenda, which I go into in episode 11. For anyone who doubts that this is the case, here's an article from the Financial Times in June 2013 about exactly that. Silicon Valley rooted in backing from US military. The latest revelations on US surveillance of the internet highlight the long-standing ties between the US military and Silicon Valley. Many of these technologies have their financial roots in government grants that supported early research into complex concepts or military contracts that provided revenues alongside commercial sales of an early product such as semiconductors. Such products form the technical foundation of modern electronics from radios to phones to computers. All of modern high-tech has the US Department of Defense to thank at its core because this is where the money came from to be able to develop a lot of what is driving the technology that we're using today, said Leslie Berlin, historian for the Silicon Valley Archives at Stanford University. Even the networking backbone that supports the modern global internet was first built by researchers funded by an early iteration of DARPA the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, the technological development arm of the Pentagon. DARPA provides money from the Department of Defense to develop technologies for military use. Many technologies used widely today are rooted in DARPA-backed research from the user interface that powers a Windows laptop to Siri, the voice of the Apple iPhone. Siri was developed out of a project backed by SRI International a non-profit research organization with funding from DARPA, which aimed to integrate various aspects of artificial intelligence into a virtual assistant that could learn and evolve without constant follow-up coding. It was an extremely ambitious project, beyond what could be done commercially, said Adam Shire, a Siri co-founder. In a company, you need to share results in a one to two year time frame, which means productizing, delivering, and monetizing at the right level. This was a five year project. The CIA formed its own non-profit corporation in 1999, in to support technology being built on the commercial sector that it believed would also be useful in collecting and analyzing intelligence information. Many of the underlying technologies that are driving the information revolution are now directly applicable to the intelligence business, wrote Rick Yunuzi, in first director of business operations and a former CIA manager in an article about the creation of the program. From the 1960s to the 1980s, the valley was crawling with Soviet spikes, said Steve Blank a retired entrepreneur and author of The Secret History of Silicon Valley. Today's tours have evolved around more commercial uses, but the military intelligence sector still finds them equally useful. In the last couple of decades, the industry has gone from solving problems in the physical space to bigger issues of cybersecurity, Mr. Blank said. We're now wiring the data world for our intelligence agencies. It's interesting to note that Regina Duggan, a former executive of DARPA, left DARPA and joined Google in 2012 and then she moved on to Facebook in 2016. And her goal while she was there was to develop technologies that fluidly blend physical and digital worlds, which is part of the transhumanism agenda. Siri, the Apple personal assistant, is a result of the DARPA project Kalo, or cognitive assistant that learns and organizes. This is what Dr. Richard Day, according to Dr. Lawrence Dunnigan, said about technology. This is what he said about what we would call today smart TVs. 
You'll be watching television and somebody will be watching you at the same time at a central monitoring station. Television sets would have a device to enable this. Smart TVs have cameras in. The quote goes on. The TV set will not have to be on in order for this to be operative. Also, the television set can be used to monitor what you are watching. People can tell what you're watching on TV and how you're reacting to what you're watching. And you would not know that you were being watched while you were watching your television. How would we get people to accept these things into their homes? Well, people would just buy them when they buy their own television. They won't know that they're on there at first. This was described by being what we now know as cable TV to replace the antenna. This is one of the reasons why there was a switch to digital TV. The quote goes on. When you buy a TV set, this monitor when you buy a TV set, this monitor would just be part of the set and most people would not have enough knowledge about electronics to know it was there in the beginning. And then the cable would be the means of carrying the surveillance message to the monitor. By the time people found out that this monitoring was going on, they would also be very dependent on television for a number of things, just the way people are dependent on telephone today. One thing the television would be used for would be purchases. You wouldn't have to leave your home to purchase, you just turn on your TV and there would be a way of interacting with your television channel to the store that you wanted to purchase. And you could flip the switch from place to place to choose your refrigerator or clothing. This would be both convenient, but it would also make you dependent on your television, so the built-in monitor would be something you could not do without. He's describing what we call today the internet. This is Dr. Lawrence Dunnigan quoted, talking about what Dr. Richard Day said in 1969. Because as I've said before, technology that we see is, is not the technology that exists outside of the public arena, which is much more advanced. So that's what he said about smart TVs and the internet, as we would call it today. And there was another one about microchipping, as we would say today. Although nowadays, there's nanotechnology which I've talked about before, especially in episode 11. This is what he said about microchips. So the next step would be the single card and the next step would be to replace... So the next step would be the single card and then the next step would be to replace the single card with a skin implant. The single card could be lost or stolen, give rise to problems, could be exchanged with somebody else to confuse identity. The skin implant, on the other hand, would be not losable or counterfeitable or transferable to another person, so you and your account will be identified without any possibility of error. That's the selling point. When they are selling elements of the agenda to us, they obviously have to give us the benefits and not tell us what they're really there for. The quote goes on. And the skin implants would have to be put someplace that would be convenient to the skin. For example, your right hand or your forehead. There was some mention also of implants that would lend themselves to surveillance by providing radio signals. This could be under the skin or a dental implant, put in like a filling so that either fugitives or possibly other citizens could be identified by a certain frequency from his or her personal transmitter and could be located at any time or any place by any authority who wanted to find them. This would be particularly useful for somebody who broke out of prison. There was more discussion of personal surveillance. Um, my goodness me, has surveillance increased since 1969. Again, once you know the agenda, calling the future is easy because society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. So, given that all this is the case, why, we might ask, do we think these corporations working closely with DARPA and the Pentagon, military intelligence, are proponents of this technological agenda called transhumanism and of social media? To give people more fun from technology, to make people better organised and better connected because they care about 
the organisation and communication of the population? Or do we think there might be a more sinister reason given that DARPA and these corporations are fundamentally connected to military intelligence? I would say after 10 years of research into world events and the truth behind official narratives, that there is a far more sinister reason. The real goal of these corporations is to advance the technological agenda and advance law enforcement and surveillance and profiling of the global population. Another article here about technology. This is in the Daily Mail. Constant interruptions from your smartphone can change your brain's chemistry to make you feel anxious, stressed and distracted. Every time your smartphone bleeps with a new notification and is changing the chemistry inside your brain, scientists warn. Constant interruptions from new emails, text messages and Facebook comments trigger high levels of the stress hormone cortisol, which can have damaging effects. Too much of this hormone can leave you feeling anxious with an increased heart rate, tense muscles and clammy palms. Scientists also warn that constant notifications can distract you so much that productivity can drop by as much as 40% without you knowing. There's this phenomenon called switch cost that occurs when there's an interruption. We switch away from the task that we're on and then we have to come on back, said Steve B, Director of Psychology at Nonprofit Academic Medical Centre, Cleveland Clinic. He goes on to say, we think it interrupts our efficiency with our brains by about 40%. Technology puts the human brain on almost constant high alert as it waits for the next alert. Whenever a notification does arrive, the body releases a small surge of the stress hormone cortisol, which triggers an increase in heart rate, tightens muscles, and causes palms to become clammy. Research by neuroscientists at the University of California, Berkeley, previously found that high levels of cortisol will create long-lasting brain changes, which can leave people in an almost constant state of fight or flight. When cortisol is released because of a smartphone notification, this tensed state can last until the person is able to check the alert Dr. B cautions. This pattern of tension and relief can influence the human brain like an addiction. When we gratify our urge to check an alert, it acts like a reward for our brain and encourages repetition of the behaviour, Dr. B said. He warns, getting off these things is like getting off anything else that has an addictive component. We're actually going to feel bad for a little while. That's significant, that point from Dr. B, because they're actually talking now about technology addiction being like addiction to drugs. Dr. B goes on, our brains aren't going to get those little dopamine surges or rewards and we might go through a period of loss or even a little bit of withdrawal. Staying productive around smart devices takes discipline, Dr. B is cautioned. The key is to reduce the level of arousal these notifications can elicit. This will reduce the amount of cortisol released by the brain, which in turn reduces the level of anxiety and stress, especially when a notification or alert is missed. To change your brain chemistry, you need to create a new habit, Dr. B teaches. Initially, when you start trying to stay away from the technology, you'll confine that you'll be a little uncomfortable. You'll have that fear of missing out or a little anxiety that something's getting past you. But with practice, your brain can get used to it, said Dr. B. The article goes on. It is especially important to disconnect from work phones whenever possible as this teaches the brain the distinction between work and home. The report from Cleveland Clinic comes a few short months after researchers from Korea uncovered an imbalance in the brain chemistry of young people addicted to their smartphones. Brain scans showed teenagers with an addiction to their devices had significantly higher scores in depression, anxiety, insomnia, severity and impulsivity than the controls. The brain scans also showed the levels of gamma aminobutyric acid, GABA, a chemical that slows down brain signals and glutamate glutamine, GLX, a chemical that causes brain cells to become more electrically excited in each participant's brain. Previous studies have found GABA to be involved in vision and motor control and the regulation of various brain functions including anxiety. That's interesting because I'm seeing anxiety, and I have for a little while now, be talked about more and more. 
I've even seen celebrities talk about it. And what is the cause of it? Well, it would seem from this article that one of the causes is technology. I've said before on pay-per-view that technology is changing the brain and I've talked about what's known as brain plasticity which means that the brain changes according to experience. Scientists used to think that the way the brain was when you were born was how it is for life but they know the opposite is the case now. When you look at the way younger and younger kids nowadays are addicted to technology and the fact that they know how to use technology on their own from even toddler age it's clear to see that technology because of brain plasticity is changing the way the brain develops. I've mentioned before a researcher called Susan Greenfield and her book Mind Change in which she details her knowledge and research into how the brain works and how technology can change the brain and here's an article in The Guardian from June 2009 talking about Greenfield's research. Facebook et al risk infantilizing the human mind. Social networking sites risk infantilizing the mid 21st century mind leaving it characterized by short attention spans, sensationalism my goodness me, have we got sensationalism on social media or what? Inability to empathise and a shaky sense of identity, according to a leading neuroscientist. The startling warning from Lady Greenfield, Professor of Synaptic Pharmacology at Lincoln College, Oxford, and Director of the Royal Institution, has led members of the government to admit their work on internet regulation is not extended to broader issues such as the psychological impact on children. Greenfield believes ministers have not yet looked at the broad cultural and psychological effect of on-screen friendships via Facebook, Bebo, and Twitter. She told the House of Lords that children's experiences on social networking sites are devoid of cohesive narrative and long-term significance. As a consequence, the mid-21st century mind might almost be infantilised, characterised by short attention spans, sensationalism, inability to empathise and a shaky sense of identity. Arguing that social network sites are putting attention span in jeopardy, she said, if the young brain is exposed from the outset to a world of fast action and reaction, of instant new screen images flashing out with the press of a key, such rapid interchange might accustom the brain to operate over such timescales. Perhaps when in the real world such responses are not immediately forthcoming, we will see such behaviours and call them attention deficit disorder. It might be helpful to investigate whether the near total submersion of our culture in screen technologies over the last decade might in some way be linked to the threefold increase over this period in prescriptions from methylphenidate, the drug prescribed for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Well, that's interesting because according to Susan Greenfield, this is a cause of attention deficit disorder. It's interesting that when you look at the symptoms of attention deficit disorder and you look at the effects of artificial sweeteners like aspartame in food and fizzy drinks, they're both the same because one's causing the other. And then what happens is kids get diagnosed with attention deficit disorder, which is nothing more than the symptoms of aspartame and other similar sources of excitement of brain cells. Aspartame is an excitotoxin, a neurotoxin and the effects of, according to Susan Greenfield, technology. And they get prescribed drugs for attention deficit disorder, which can actually make them worse. The article goes on. She also warned against a much more marked preference for the here and now, where the immediacy of an experience trumps any regard for the consequences. After all, whenever you play a computer game, you can always just play it again. Everything you do is reversible. The emphasis is on the thrill of the moment, the buzz of rescuing the princess in the game. No care is given for the princess herself, for the content or for any long-term significance, because there is none. This type of activity, a disregard for consequence, can be compared with the thrill of compulsive gambling or compulsive eating. The sheer compulsion of reliable and almost immediate reward is being linked to similar chemical systems in the brain that may also play a part in drug addiction. So we should not underestimate the pleasure of interacting with the screen when we puzzle over why it seems so appealing to young people, says Greenfield. 
Greenfield also warned there was a risk of a loss of empathy as children read novels less. Unlike the game to rescue the princess where the goal is to feel rewarded, the aim of reading a book is after all to find out more about the princess herself. She claimed that sense of identity can be eroded by fast-paced instant screen reactions. Perhaps the next generation will define themselves by the responses of others. Social networking sites can provide a constant reassurance that you are listened to, recognised and important, Greenfield continued. The article goes on. This was coupled with the distancing from the stress of face-to-face real-life conversation which were far more perilous, occurring in real time with no opportunity to think up clever or witty responses and require a sensitivity to voice tone, body language and perhaps even to pheromones, those sneaky molecules we release and which others smell subconsciously. She said she feared real conversation in real time may eventually give way to these sanitised and easier screen dialogues in much the same way as killing, skinning and butchering an animal to eat has been replaced by the convenience of packages of meat on the supermarket shelf. Perhaps future generations will recoil with similar horror of the messiness and predictability and immediate personal involvement of the three-dimensional real-time interaction. The article goes on. The solutions, however, lay less in regulation as in education, culture and society. Greenfield argued that the appeal of Facebook lay in the fact that a child confined to the home every evening may find at the keyboard the kind of freedom of interaction and communication that earlier generations took for granted in the three-dimensional world of the street, but even given a choice, screen life can still be more appealing. That's very significant because if kids don't have experiences with friends in real life, they're never going to learn from their friends and those experiences, and thus they'll never grow as a person if their interaction is only through social media and technology. Being with the right friends give you memorable and valuable memories and experiences and can make you a better person but not if your interaction with them is only through technology the article goes on she quoted one user saying they had 900 friends another saying the fact that you can't see or hear other people makes it easier to reveal yourself in a way that you might not be comfortable with you become less conscious of the individuals involved including yourself less inhibited less embarrassed and less concerned about how you will be evaluated the article goes on, but Greenfield warned it is hard to see how living this way on a daily basis will not result in brains or rather minds different from those of previous generations. We know that the human brain is exquisitely sensitive to the outside world. They want to target the young because they are planned to be the first generation most affected by the world the elite agenda demand. And that's what pay-per-view is about, the bigger picture. Let's go hear about energy bills. This is in the Daily Mail. £100 a month energy bills. As last of the big six power giants hikes its tariffs, a consumer watchdog tells families to switch to smaller firms. Millions face paying £100 a month for heating and lighting after the last of the big six energy firms hike tariffs. SSE, Britain's second biggest supplier, is raising its standard variable tariff and removing a discount for online bills, meaning 2.4 million customers will pay an extra £87 a year. This will take the annual cost of the company's SVT up to £1,196. The firm is the last of the big six suppliers to announce price rises in recent weeks with the result that all will now be charging around £1,200 a year for a typical household. The combined effect of the increases will take some £570 million a year out of the pockets of more than 9 million customers according to industry analysts. Energy Minister Claire Perry has described the round of price hikes as unjustified, and yesterday consumer experts said anyone on a big six standard tariff was ripping themselves off. They advised families to hit back by switching away to smaller energy firms that are around £400 a year cheaper. SSE suggested the main reason for the increase was a rise in the wholesale cost of gas and electricity, but it also blamed the government and the fact that customers are carrying the cost of subsidies for wind farms, supporting vulnerable households with insulation and bills, and installing smart meters. The company argues these costs should be paid for 
to general taxation. The government is currently putting a bill through Parliament that will introduce a cap on SVTs, which are charged to more than 60% of households. That will come into effect before winter. It is unclear if this will reverse any or all of the latest increases. Julian Guy of Citizens Advice said the SSC rise was extremely disheartening. Today's price hike risks hitting those who can least afford it. Customers who are unhappy with their current energy supplier or tariff should consider switching now, she added. Alex Neil of Witch said the rise was another slap in the face for customers already feeling the pinch, adding we would urge the 9 million customers affected by the big six price cuts to take back the power by switching to a better deal as they could save up to £400 a year. Martin Lewis, the founder of MoneySavingExpert.com, accused the energy firms of acting like sheep by raising prices at the same time. They're not acting like sheep, they're doing it because of an agenda I'm about to describe after I finish reading the article. I've talked before about how at least the major corporations are all owned by the same elite network ultimately. This is why, one reason why, corporations like Google and Facebook and YouTube all work to the same agenda, for example. He said, anyone on a big six standard tariff is ripping themselves off. Do nothings, pay massively more than a do something, switch firm, and you could cut bills to almost £800 a year, even with the same usage. Claire Osborne of the website uswitch.com added, SSC may be the last of the big six to increase its most expensive deal, but it certainly hasn't been shy about it, hiking prices by nearly 90%. This is more than all the other big energy suppliers. Nearly 2.4 million who are already paying over the odds on SVTs will be paying even more. The SSC increases mean the cost of the SVT for your fuel bill will rise by an average of 6.7%, adding £75 a year to bills. It is also removing a £6 per fuel discount for paying online, rather than receiving a paper bill in the post. This adds another £12. Eon was the first of the big six to announce a price rise with its SVT going up by 2.7% in April. It was followed by British Gas, which increased its SVT by 5.4% this week, a 5.6% rise from Scottish Power comes into effect on Friday, with a 1.4% increase at EDF next week. This was published on the 31st of May. Empower is putting up its SVT by 5.5% on June 17th, and the SSE hike will take effect on July the 11th. The increase by Empower, which is involved in merger talks with SSE, would take its annual bill to £1,230. SSC Stephen Forbes said, We deeply regret having to raise prices. The firm added sustained increases in the cost of supplying energy, principally from higher wholesale energy prices and the cost of delivering government policy initiatives designed to modernise and decarbonise must eventually be reflected in prices. Decarbonise, carbon dioxide from human activity causing climate change, is a massive lie which I talk about in last week's episode. And it's a major justification for the Agenda 21 world. Agenda 21 out of the United Nations. Well, there's a bigger picture here. Of course, you would not be surprised to hear me say that, given that this is pay-per-view. Switching energy suppliers may be worth it in the short term, but the idea is to have major corporations owned by the elite, ultimately, just like at least many of the major corporations now already are and have been for a long time. Those major corporations running everything. So this idea that you can switch to smaller firms, the smaller firms are designed to disappear. There will be no smaller firms to switch to. And so whatever these corporations want to charge, they can charge it because if you don't go through them, you have no heating, you have no electricity. They don't want business. They want the whole idea of business to disappear. Corporations is what they want. Giant corporations owned by the elite. And I've talked before about trade deals like Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, which is operated out of the European Union and America, where corporations can take governments to court and overturn laws if they think those laws will affect profits, even if those laws are there to 
benefit people. Of course, there's a lot of laws that are there just there for the sake of being there, but and for control and for other reasons that are not good for people. But some laws are there to protect people. And if a corporation doesn't like one or more of them, they can take governments to court and potentially get that law overturned through TTIP, through the European Union. Corporations, especially the major ones, are not the origin of different elements of the elite's agenda occurring in society. They are the vehicle for it. People talk about globalization, which is the unceasing bringing together of power in the hands of a tiny few people at a central point to have power over everyone else. And this is the very agenda I'm talking about, although it's far more sinister in truth than that. You bring power to the center, then most tiny few people have the power to dictate to all the rest. I and mean, we can see this now with the European Union, for example. But they want to take it onto a world level, using the unions as a means to dictate to the countries of the unions. And they want to break even countries up into regions, as I have said before in pay-per-view. Small businesses are going to struggle with this price increase, as well as people in general. And this is all part of getting rid of small businesses, among other means, including endless regulation and laws that small businesses will struggle to keep up with. And that's the idea endless red tape that they have to abide by. The plan is for only giant corporations in a corporate world with a corporate mentality to run human society. And this is before you get to robots and automation increasing in the workplace, which is another method of creating the Hunger Games society. This three-tier society where you have the elite, mega, mega, mega luxury, even more than now. Everyone in the world in poverty and the only bracket in between is a merciless, psychopathic, brutal law enforcement. And in the end, as I've said before, it's designed to be a robotic, artificial intelligence law enforcement. I've talked about that in episode 16. Drones will be part of this as well. This is what working hard all your life will get you. Why? Because as I keep saying, society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. People do well in school, some people, then maybe they go to college or university, they get a good job, good money, nice house, and they keep working and following the life which most people follow. And they do all that to eventually end up in poverty. This is where the world is planned to go in the Hunger Games society. And anybody who doubts that we're going in that direction, listen to episode four. It's a two-parter, and the reason for that was to encompass the number of stories that week, pointing to the fact that we are already in and going deeper and deeper into the Hunger Games Society and the 1984 world and the Agenda 21 world. They want robots to take over from people in the end. And of course that contributes to creating the Hunger Games Society because how do you pay the bills? Energy bills, for example, never mind anything else. When robots take your jobs, you don't, and that's the idea. I've seen people say about this robotic automation takeover that it would be great because it would give us time to do all the fun things we want to do while robots are doing the jobs. Well, how are we going to pay for doing all those things we want to do if we don't have the money because robots are taking the jobs? They don't seem to consider that. And what about food? What about water? What about energy? What about paying the mortgage? How are we going to afford that? Never mind all the fun things we could do. What about the basics? How do you pay the bills? You don't, and that's the whole idea of it. You see, this is the thing. 
you'll get economists and economic advisors talking about you should do this, you should do that in terms of money, but they never seem to address the fact that the system of money is a massive con trick, which I've talked about before on pay-per-view in episode 5, and they don't seem to realise that price hikes are not just about making more money. On one level they are, but there's a bigger agenda here which I've, which I've just been explaining. The plan is for corporations to run everything, and if you don't want to work for a corporation like Amazon, for example, and just look at the way they treat their workers. I talk about them in episode 6. If you don't want to work for a giant corporation like that, then there is no other choice. Indeed, in the Agenda 21 world, the Hunger Games Society, people would live in regions or sectors, and the job they did would be dependent on where they live, what human settlement zone they live in, in the words of Agenda 21. And they'd be working either directly or ultimately for a giant corporation. This is the bigger picture behind stories like this one about price hikes by energy corporations. It's not just about money, there's a bigger picture behind it. And that's what pay-per-view is about, the bigger picture. So that's it for this week. That's the news, that's the contest and connections, that's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.